Hi, this is Steve Milton. I'm the columnist at the Hamilton Spectator in Hamilton, Ontario, and you're listening to Pro Sports Podcasters. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Welcome back to the Pro Sports Podcasters. My name is Colbert Ron. You guys know me as Kobe. And today we've got a veteran of Canadian sports media. This gentleman is based in the Hamilton area and we'll be covering some some teams we don't usually talk about that often on the Pro Sports Podcasters. I'm kind of excited to get into it. And with no further ado, let's introduce Steve Milton. Steve, how you doing? Hi, Kobe. Great to, great to talk to you here, and congratulations on this podcast. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. As we were just saying, you've been 37 years with the Hamilton Spectator? Yeah, you, you had to say that out loud, right? So. <laughs> well, you started when you were six, right? So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, 37 with the Spectator, and I was in uh, Aurelia before that for seven years, and Huntsville for a couple of years, so, so it's a few years now. Better part of a half century, I think. Okay, and before we get into local teams and such let's talk a little bit about how you actually got into sports media to begin with how you became a a columnist and a, a sports analyst basically well it was kind of a you couldn't do it today Kobe it, it, it you know and I don't recommend this don't try this at home or anywhere else uh, but I was I, I I was a little bit older and and I'd had a couple of sort of semi-careers already in, in, and I had a cleaning business up in Huntsville, contract cleaning. You know, you go in after the factories are closed or the business is closed or the bar is closed and you clean up all the mess and, uh, and uh, you know, get it all ready for the next day and that's what you do. And then I had a couple of people working for me and uh, one of the factories that I had a contract at, one of the foremen there, his wife owned the one of the town newspapers. Okay. Uh, which was called the Muskoka Free Press. And I used to complain about sports all the time. Ironically, as we'll find out during the uh, conversation, uh, that they had too much figure skating just because his daughter was a figure skater. So about two weeks later, the guy came to me and said, essentially this, it wasn't, I'm putting a bit, bit of words in his mouth here, Colby, but he said, essentially, you got such a big mouth. Why don't you try it? See if you're any good at it. So I, it was paying, I think, $25 for the whole day. I hired somebody to do my work. Uh, some of the cleaning, uh, and started writing columns by hand just on sports uh, for Huntsville, Bracebridge, and Gravenhurst at the time. And then uh, a week later, they said, well, that's not bad. Uh, how would you like to work full-time in news? So I worked five days a week and got to, you know, started, they taught me how to use a camera and all of those kinds of things and the layout stories and paste them on the page. You did everything there. And then a week after that, they said, well, now, I'll remind you, it's a very small paper. How would you like to be the editor? So I went from not knowing anything about newspapers to being the editor of one okay. uh, within about three weeks. So, uh, and But the con- the concentration was on sports. That's what I liked the most. At the time, I on Monday nights, I would uh, uh, my wife used to say, I can tell you're getting ready that tomorrow's Tuesday because you're really suddenly focused. And I'd, I'd write about the local lacrosse team, I think, was the first things I wrote about. But we had good fastball there, all the high school stuff, uh, all of those kinds of things. And, and eventually, after a couple of years of that, 
And I still worked uh, in the cleaning company uh, nights when I didn't have to work at games and that kind of thing. I still did the cleaning company. So because there wasn't a lot of money, as you could tell, uh, in uh, the 70s, uh, late 70s, um, the really packet and times called and said, we saw your stuff. Would you like to come down? And I didn't think you could actually make a money, any money or a living sports writing. And it really took me a long time to make up my mind, but we decided that we would go to Aurelia and give it a year or two in a daily paper and ended up staying, staying there. And uh, that's where Brian Orser was at the time okay. because of something else that had happened uh, earlier in my life. I knew what uh, a triple axle was and he just landed the really what was essentially, it wasn't technically, but it really in practicality was the uh, only triple axle being landed in the world at the time. And, Soon I started freelancing around the world, following all of Canada's figure skaters. And that got me attention with the Olympics and working on hockey, you know, for Hockey Canada, doing the same thing at the Olympics and, and uh, ended up uh, the a really pa- or the uh, Hamilton Spectator called and said, we're starting a new paper in Burlington. It's part of the Hamilton Spectator. If you come and help us set up that for a year, we'll give you the Blue Jays beat. And this was in 1986. So you can imagine mm-hmm. the Blue Jays were the team anywhere in Canada at the time. So I jumped at it and I've been there ever since. Okay. So yeah, that, not the conventional path. No, <laughs> not not really. And, and it started quite young, really. Uh, when I was a kid, I had the best job in the history of 17-year-old boys, Kobe. There it was at Hamilton, or sorry, it was at a place called the Tamil Shanter, which still exists, uh, I believe, as a golf course uh, in Toronto, uh, in Agent Court, actually. But at the time, it was the biggest curling club in Canada. It had seven rinks, and it was also the home of the biggest hockey school. It was right at the start of the big hockey school boom. And uh, residential hockey school, 350 boys, all boys at the time, no girls, swimming pool, golf course you could play, bowl all night. And the uh, two things that were the cappers to that was that all of the Leafs, uh, and remember, this is when they were winning. This is the summer before they won their last Stanley Cup, which at the time we didn't know. There were five or six Leafs on the hockey staff. I was on the off-ice staff teaching swimming and football and all of those kinds of things. Uh, to, to, to kids, some of them were older than me because I was only 17, and I did this for three years. And uh, some of the staff members were Eddie Shack and Frank Mahovlich and Kent Douglas and – Terry Sawchuk came over all the time. So did Ron Stewart, uh, a, a whole bunch of guys that played for the Maple Leafs, Wayne Carlton at the time. And uh, so a lot of those guys I kept in. Uh, Tommy Watt was a high school coach at the time and he was coaching. And so I watched them study or, or watched them coach and learned a lot about the game from them. And uh, at the same time, the main rink, we could only use at night, the biggest drink, because during the day, all of Canada's best female or best skaters, most of whom were females, most of whom were 17, which was the same age I was, were all training there. And that's how I learned about figure skating and what a triple axel was. And that it wasn't a sport for the faint of heart, that they were much tougher than uh, than any hockey player the any hockey players that I knew because they were falling onto the ice without pads from you know four and five feet when they jump mm-hmm. and I became enamored uh, by the sport and it's also the place you know what power skating is that's what hockey uh, yeah it was invented there and it was invented by figure skaters there so all those uses of edges and all of those kinds of things came out of figure skating so pretty warm spot in my heart for figure skating over the years so that's a long story but it's not that bad a one for it. it's a pretty good journalism story. That's a great journalism story. I'm actually an avid golfer. I've played Tamil Shanter, I don't know how many times. Right. And well, I, I did with, not know about the history. I did not know. About it. Yeah, you probably didn't even know it was a curling rink at one point because they no. burnt down. 
all the, the rinks burnt down. This is after I, I, I had worked there. I worked there three summers and then, uh, I don't know what, you know, I think then I moved to Huntsville or something like that. But, but yeah, it, it was, uh, at that time, not a lot of hockey players, all hockey players are golfers now. Yeah. But a lot of them didn't. They thought it was bad for their shot, and they were all – most of them played fast pitch, or some of them even played lacrosse in those – for money uh, in the uh, – for their local town teams in, the, in those days. But and, and very few of them were, could play golf. But the ones that were there, Eddie Shack turned into a tremendous golfer. He was basically a, a, a scratch golfer. Peter Mahovlich, who's still a friend, and he and I were just talking about uh, that. Because Peter and I are the same age, so we kind of grew up together in the summers. Hung around together, went to Yorkville, uh, which for which for your listeners was the hip place. That's where Neil Young and all all kinds of people used to play all the time. It was kind of a hippie spot downtown during yeah. the sixties. Um, uh, he and I went there quite a bit together, and and then we had these legendary hockey games on Saturday night. And I wasn't a very good player. I, I was like a double A player or something like that. But all these guys were all pros, and they're all suddenly, you know, in August, they start get worrying because in those days. Players didn't stay in shape in the summertime. They played themselves into shape during training camp, which was long and grueling. And some of them would, you know, be a little worried about it. So they started coming to the TAM. So even players from other teams, like NHL teams, would show up. Anybody lived near Toronto, they'd be seeing legendary games, you know. And, and two or three of us from uh, that worked on the staff on the hockey school got to play there. Wow. And so I, I can remember one night looking up, and there's – there's Frank Mahovlich and Eddie Shack and Pete Mahovlich coming down on me three on one. Uh, needless to say, they scored. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was going to let you say whatever you wanted to say. <laughs> right? I was, I was saying. Peter keeps he keeps saying that I taught him to skate, but I did not. But Peter Mahovlich was the first power skating's first major success. Because he couldn't skate well enough to play in the NHL, but he worked hard with the figure skaters, and I'd be out there at night moving the cones around for him. Uh, he he keeps thinking I taught him how to skate, but I I didn't. I didn't. I couldn't skate that well myself. And, and I mean, I played double A, you know, lousy lousy double A. And and uh, he uh, he kept working at it and working at it and working at it because he was playing. Uh, they they thought he had the skills to go to the NHL. But uh, they felt his skating wasn't strong enough, particularly his starting. And I, he worked on his edges, and he worked on it. I can still see him leaning over and them working with him. And he's a funny guy. Pete Mahal is a very funny guy. Laughing and making fun of it, working hard. And he said that he added 25% to his skating for his last year of uh, junior hockey, which was being played for the Hamilton Red Wings at the time. And he said he doesn't make the NHL without that power skating that he, that he learned all those nights uh, uh, at the rink from figure skaters. Wow. Yeah, pretty neat, eh? Now, as as a journalist, yeah. which sport is the more difficult sport to cover, hockey or figure skating? Uh, they each have their problems, Kobe, uh, uh, to, to cover them, and each have their strengths. I'd say it's easier to cover hockey, but you're going against people that you're go- you, you really have to know it. To do it, so so let's. And the reason I say it's easier is that both all the managers, the coaches, it's changed. Uh, and I did it at the NHL for many, many, many years, thirty uh, some odd years probably. And and uh, as a as a columnist, I never was the beat writer there. But uh, you know, with with caught halfway between two NHL teams, uh, Buffalo mm-hmm. and Hamilton, I was at many a lot of games a year, like sixty or seventy a year, and, and and double that in the number of practices, and and. Uh, Hockey, 
the players are a little bit more forthcoming. At least they were in that time. Uh, I'm, I haven't done it for five years since uh, the Tor Star, which owns Hamilton Spectator, changed kind of their policy and, and made it more a little more local for me, and, and uh, took me off off the uh, uh, off the Raptors and the and the uh, and the Blue Jays and baseball. And I get it. I, I would have done it too. For you know, like why would you have two people doing it? So we run the Toronto Star stuff. So, but while the people are accessible, there are more people here in the industry who know the game really, really, really well. So you're competing against people that know an awful lot. The problem with figure skating, it's hard to get some of the same kind of information. You've got to be there. You don't find a lot of the stuff. It's much a little bit better now with the internet sport. Uh, and it's a, it's a very esoteric sport. They don't have as many games, of course. It's a practice sport. Uh, they don't have many... Uh, you know, a figure skater might compete about six. It's better now. They used to only compete two or three times a year. Now they compete yeah. seven, eight, nine, ten, which is why they're so good. But if you know it, then the competition as a writer uh, isn't as big, right? Now, that said, neither is the readership, although Correct. it's pretty amazing because it's more of a worldwide readership. So for a while, when we were writing stuff in The Spectator, and this was just as before, this just before the Internet got going, but I would consider – the Globe and Mail was this way too, but I would consider us at the time – uh, the best figure skating paper in the world. And many people felt that because we gave it an awful. And so it was a lot of people would uh, ask people who lived in Hamilton to send them the spectator because they knew there'd always be a lot of figure skating in there. And uh, a lot of the great events were held here in Hamilton because of cops Coliseum, which is now first Ontario center mm-hmm. uh, where the Hamilton Bulldogs play. Um, that was a place that you had the same market in Toronto. Like it's only in those days, it was only about a 35 minute drive. It was easier to get to cops Coliseum from most parts of Toronto than it was to get downtown to uh, to let's say uh, Maple Leaf Gardens at the time uh, and and uh, and then later on the Air Canada Center. So a lot of great events, like major events, like Grand Prix Finals, the Nationals, Elvis Stoiko versus in a legendary shootout they call it the greatest men's final in Canadian history. Elvis Stoiko and and uh, uh, Kurt Browning went head to head and and uh, they reenacted that during Stars on Ice this year because Kirk Browning is retiring from Stars on Ice. So they reenacted that very, very night at Bloomington Hamilton. So Hamilton was pretty pretty amazing for figure skating that, that way. It, it's a beautiful sport. Uh, the problem with it, of course, and I still have a problem with it, uh, the French judge uh, that scandal in 2002 at the Olympics, um, you know, with uh, David and uh, Jamie, that was Soleil and Pelche when they had to settle for a, a tie for the gold and it went to arbitration, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, tarred the sport in North America. Up till then, it had been a brilliant growth sport. It had been a tremendous sport and it's never fully recovered in North America. I fully agree with you. I fully agree yeah. with you. Now, now, given your location, the fact that you were based in Hamilton for so yeah. long, at any point, I mean, obviously you're covering the Hamilton Ticats, but were the Buffalo Bills part of your purview or no? Yep. Oh, for sure. Yeah. When they were in their, when they won their four in a row, I, I went over and covered them a c- couple of times. But as the second and third person, uh, because we had a big, big staff then, now we only have 1.5 um, writers in sports, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm the one, and a close friend of mine is the 0.5, and he has to spend 0.5 of his half, half of his week in news. But in those days, we had 13, 14 writers. So I was traveling with the Blue Jays, doing only the Blue Jays all how many year, months a year is that? Eight or nine months. And in the off seasons, which would usually start 
around uh, playoff time in the CFL. I'd be the third guy maybe doing a third story on the Ticats. And the same thing with the Bills. They'd send me over to do some features on players that might be there uh, uh, rather than cover it uh, because somebody else would be doing that. And, and, and they'd write a, I'd write a column on, uh, you know, the tailgating and, 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 the, and the high percentage of people from Canada that used to yeah. go to all the games. So, yeah, did a lot of that. And then, then, uh, then I... I'd go over about once a year after that, up until uh, up until a year or two before uh, the pandemic. They were pretty bad there for a while. There wasn't a lot. There was still a lot of people from here going over, but th- there wasn't a lot of interest. Plus, the Tiger Cats were increasing their profile. Yes, uh, it, they went from being sort of almost an afterthought to, to being like a major player again, like they were had been for the first hundred some odd years of their existence. So now, what, what is the Tiger Cat fan base like now? They sell out every game, but it's a hard sell, uh, and it's a small stadium. But uh, at twenty three thousand, just about twenty four thousand, most games are they're, if they're not sold out, they're within a hundred or two, and somebody buys them up and gives them the boys clubs, boys and girls clubs, or something like that. The money that they generate from hit from that from that is really tremendous because they built a new stadium for the Pan Am games. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that stadium was responsible for the starting of a whole soccer league, and we can get into that. They built that stadium, and uh, there's some high end sides to it. And they they've sold they, they they have no more inventory to sell because all of the all of the boxes are sold out. They've added boxes. They've they've, they've just reconfigured it for the Grey Cup uh, and added a few little wrinkles that they're going to keep all the time. Like and uh, the social media, it was the big thing there. It was the first stadium design in Canada to have social media. And, and do you know what I mean by that? Where where it's designs so you don't have to watch the game. You can walk all the way around and talk to your friends in all of these spots. In fact, they sell tickets with no seats, some of them. But anywhere in the stadium, you can walk around, and there are screens everywhere, including the largest outdoor screen in Canada, that you can sort of, if something happens, you're right there, you're you're staying in touch, but you're also watching it by updates on your phone. They designed that back, that concept back in 2012, 2013. Ottawa opened their sort of refurbished stadium before I, I think Hamilton got. But anyways, they they took some of the plans for they did they do the same thing. It was big in the United States, but it wasn't really big in Canada, and it's become a, a big thing here. Social viewing and and the CFL is very very interested in it because the CFL has an older demographic. That's right. Yes. So the future is in the younger demographic. So the CFL has always been very interested in in having promoting this social media thing. And they tried to, they, they gave Hamilton the great cup for uh, 2021, but of course then it was restricted by uh, pandemic concerns right. at the time and limited crowd. So they couldn't do the, as big as social media thing. So they gave it to them again for 2023 because they want to, which is this year, they will really want to see how some of the social media stuff, if it can be translated to other places. So Saskatchewan is now starting to use it. And uh, some of the other steam, it's the way to go because it lowers your demographic significantly. And it's not just about getting young people, but it's about getting about getting your future fans, which are one and the same thing, young people, right? I mean, at, at one point, uh, you know, some of the older fans are going to be there. So so you've got two kind of things going on in the stadium. You've got the people who are fixated on the field, uh, and some of those are younger people as well. Mm-hmm. But there are other people who are wandering around, and some of those are older people because they've, they've got into the social viewing thing. It, it's great. I mean, you see somebody that you know lives on your block, I'll meet you down in the bar, we'll watch it here, and guess what? We're not going to go back to our seat. We're going to stay here and watch it on the screens. Oh, they just scored. I'm going to look and see what happened. Right. So uh, that's the kind of thing that that's that's social viewing. 
Oh, that sounds awesome, actually. I, I got to che- gotta check that out. It only lends itself to certain sports. But, so but, uh, you had hinted at it, and we'll just bring it up now. So what's the fan base like for Forge FC, for the Hammers? It's growing. It's a slow sell. It didn't help that, you know, they all of the stuff that went down with Canada soccer in, yes. in recent months, you know, that all the things that everybody's made, it kept, they kept coming up sometimes in a negative light. People saying, what is this league doing? You know, why do we support this thing that's semi-pro? It's not semi-pro, it's full pro. They just don't make a lot of money. But it's a very definitely a professional league, and there's a lot of money in the ownership. And uh, they're the ones, the true, did start the Canadian soccer business, and they'll come to a compromise there on that long-term deal. Everybody knows. We're just not sure what the compromise is going to be. But they take a shot at it. They, they gambled the, the, Canadians, uh, the, the Canadian Premier League. You had to have a fair amount of money to – you had to be able to lose X amount of money. You had to have a stadium with a good lease and all. And that's why the league is small. And they had a really good first year. Uh, but then the pandemic hit after their first year. And uh, so they had a, they just had a, a brief summer series, but they managed to play, which the CFL, uh, which has a couple of similar owners, the Hamilton Tiger Cats own the, the team here as well. And the Winnipeg uh, Blue Bombers own the team in Winnipeg and, and uh, other Aries with CFL franchise have the, the CFL team is interested in it, but they, they haven't bought into it. So, but they managed to keep going and uh, they started to attract that keeping going just allowed them to, they lost a whole year of momentum. Then the next year they didn't start to part way through the season because they had a bubble for the first eight or nine games. Yes. So they lost two years where they probably would have expanded by two or three teams and brought in, there's a lot of teams like the European uh, from the European league that are searching around Atletico, Madrid, one of the world's great sides, right? One of the world's top 15 sides, bought a franchise team in, in Ottawa. And there are all kinds of people sniffing around the team. They put it in abeyance because they didn't have the right financing in, uh, in Edmonton. They, Edmonton played the uh, first, uh, or first four years, but, uh, isn't playing this year. They've suspended that, but they're not worried about it because somebody like Fenway Park or somebody that owns, you know, the people that own Liverpool, uh, there's people from Uruguay sniffing around there and several other places uh, in in uh, in Canada to put teams in Quebec City and Montreal as well, uh, Laval, uh, those kinds of things. And there's outside money looking at that. So Hamilton draws about, and they would have drawn much more than this. They, they average about 6,000 fans a game. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty good. I mean, last year they only had about 3,000, but they're coming off two years and not really playing. And they've played internationally. They, they've played more international games because they they went to CONCACAF League. That's right. Winning there and and then... Champions League. And, and we got to the Champions League, mm-hmm. which is amazing in a team's third year. They played they played in the Azteca Stadium in front of 35,000 in, in leg two of that Champions League. And, so, and they won three out of the first four. CPL finals and the fourth one, the only one that was a single game at home, and they lost that one nothing. Uh, so they were in the finals every year. So they they yeah. they're, they three out of four they won it. They won. They played more games than than anybody in Nor- in uh, in Canada. And maybe no, not in. I wouldn't say in North America, but certainly in Canada, they've played more international games because of the successes that they've had. I think they've played thirty five international games in less than four years. It's amazing success. It's an amazing and a really good team to watch. Kobe, a lot of fun. I mean, I sort of followed soccer, but then I sort of lost it for Canadian soccer for a long, long time. And then I met John Herdman while I was covering the 2012 uh, Olympics, uh, and we had two people from Hamilton uh, on area on the women's team. And I was supposed to do one game, 
and I went to the first game and they lost to Japan and it was actually before the opening ceremony like before the opening ceremonies would have been held because you can't get the soccer tournament in unless you start before the actual opening ceremony so I called the boss and said I think I'm going to hang around this team a little more I, 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 this coach I was he's helping me out he's helping me really learn the game and he's, he's uh, but there's something about this team and, and they had lost well we know they ended up playing the greatest game in the history of women's soccer right the one against the US that they lost with they should never have lost. And then they ended up winning a bronze medal, Canada's first team medal at an Olympics game since, I think, 1936 uh, on Diana Matheson's goal in a game that they shouldn't have won. They shouldn't have been in it. They should have been. But they had that kind of grit. So it was, I mean, I'm so glad I stuck with them because, and then Birdman, because there were only a few of us. There was two or three, I think two people from the Globe and a couple of others that, that went to most of the games. And, and he took his time to explain about the way soccer set up and, and how we needed a change in Canada and mm-hmm. how, we, you know, our, our pathway wasn't right. And eventually we're never, you know, we're, when we run out of, we'll run out of Sinclair's unless, uh, unless we, uh, change our, you know, development system. And, uh, and, and you saw what's happened. It's morphed into the men's team, you know, I mean, the people criticize him for certain things, but I mean, really he's turned that program as well. So he's turned two programs a- around here, uh, at a world level. And he's, you know, we're lucky to have him so yeah and in the grand in the grand scheme of things in a relatively short period of time right as he's seeding this interest in me kobe uh in 2012 at the same time the tiger cats know that they're trying to get a stadium and it might be part of the pan am games Mm -hmm. so they're already in 2012 thinking what goes into that stadium because what was going to happen was that as part of the them being the primary tenant they had to promise eventually when they got the stadium that they would bring some kind of professional soccer there. So they were examining everything. And it was then the, the guy who's now FIFA FIFA vice president, probably the second or third most powerful man in FIFA at the moment, a guy named uh, Victor Montagliani, who was the head of CONCACAF, Canadian, in Vancouver. He was trying to get it together and he talked to the Tiger Cats about, why don't you start your own league? Because this is something we need to do. We don't have a premier league in this country. You know, and, and you can't host it. People forget this. And all of the criticism, all of the criticism that's come down in the last uh, few months about CONCACAF and all the people that have run Soccer Canada, if you don't have a premier league, your own premier league, you cannot host a World Cup game. So they wouldn't have been part of the uh, 2026 World Cup, which we think all of us think is going to change soccer in this country. It'll be the one thing that changes everything. Yes. So that league was started to sort of gear towards 2026, but also to make sure that Canada could be one of the hosts. If they weren't, they wouldn't have been in it. And and, and uh, they might not have even been in, in, in the last one because because uh, that changed a few. A few things had to be changed in the manner of qualification, or they may not even have had an opportunity to qualify for the one that made us all so crazy a year ago. So... Um, the CPL has been a really big part of that. Are you ready to stay fit this winter? Get off the couch with Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. Sign up now to their mobility and movement program. Use the code PSP15 to get 15% off the one-time purchase of the program. Then it's yours forever. No additional subscriptions or fees. The program is available worldwide. Now, back to the show. Now, are, are Forge fans Toronto FC fans as well? Yeah. It's that they're soccer fans, period. Yeah. 
now, not every one of the, you know, they, let's say the 6,000 go to a game. So that, that's, that's probably a, a fan base of 25 to 30,000 that go to maybe, you know, and, and any 6,000 at any one time would go. And so they're going to try and grow that, keep growing it. And they're doing it by starting academies and getting associate teams. And they're going to, they're, they're just going to become the regional team here from here. And the league looks to be expanding and, uh, the international games. And now the CPL has, has, uh, uh, two births in the in the in the in the redesigned uh, Champions League. All right, so the the uh, the regular season champions and the and the playoff champions both get a direct entry into the, into that uh, Champions League now, where the Forge had to fight its way through it for many many years to get through it. So, uh, but a lot of them started as part of the Red Wave in Toronto, right? That that part of the Red Sea in Toronto there, and many of them are. It, it really was a bit polarizing for people here because they. When they played against Toronto in the delayed 2020 uh, uh, Canadian Championship final, they couldn't play it that year. So uh, Ford said, you guys go on ahead to Champions League, but you're not going as champions. You have to come and play us eventually for this vacant championship of 2020. And they had it here, and a lot of people were torn between the two, but but uh, Hamilton being the underdogs, and it was Hamilton should have won that game. They should have won that game. Okay, now you cover these games, correct? Yeah, yeah. So a game like the very next game on the schedule is Forge FC versus Vancouver FC. Right. You've got that West Coast time slot that begins at like 10 p.m. Eastern. How much does that hurt a team like the Forge have to play those time slots? It hurts. Uh, And and, and so does the fact that it's a subscription TV service, except if you can get uh, TELUS. Right. In which case... uh, Soccer Canada paid an awful lot of money, which through Media Pro, uh, the Spanish TV people took a look at this league and saw what nobody in Canada, no broadcaster, no soccer people in Canada, soccer people were floored when right before the season, their first season started, they got a $200 million 10-year contract that included mostly all CPL games. It was all CPL games, mm-hmm. but also were games that weren't done by rights holders. Uh, like That's why you could see a few, uh, all the CONCACAF playoffs leading up to the World's Cup, because the, the rights holders who normally have the World Cup don't have those games. So you get some of those games too, and some of the women's games and all the friendlies and all those things would be part of it as, as, as that deal. So that's that's an issue. Not only are the games sometimes at 10.30, there's two teams out in the West Coast now, yeah. which shows, you know, there's one in Vancouver and, well, Fraser Valley, I guess that is, and one on the island. And those games, you know, are hard so for them, especially since it's a subscription service as well. So they're not, those games aren't really selling the game to the local market here because of that. And it's difficult for, I mean, I'll watch them and I'll maybe, but I, but because we don't, the web isn't going to be that big and they're often on a weekend and our web stuff on uh, Saturdays and that isn't very big. So we, uh, I will pick them up the next day or two or, and, and sometimes I can't do it either because as I say, there's only one of me. So more I'll write features on it, that kind of thing, but I will watch the games because you have to stay up on it because you never know what's going to happen. And it could be the thing that you need to write about. And then of course we have, you know, the web coverage, uh, some web coverage, uh, Canadian press uh, tends to pick those games up. But trouble with uh, when you ever you count on Canadian press, it's usually done but from the vantage point of the city in which the game is played. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, right? 100% it's biased. That's right. Yeah, well, yeah, or certainly, <laughs> yeah, not in terms of, but yeah, certainly on what 
they think matters in the story. That's that right. Part. Yeah. And same here. Right. So if you're if, if, if it happened to be a game that I wasn't covering and CP was covering it, uh, likely it would be because you're talking to the people here and, that you know, I mean, you do talk to the other team. There's there's balance, some balance in the coverage, but it's basically the especially the lead. And, and, and for those, you know, uh, people that don't know, the lead is the first sentence or the first two or three sentences uh, in a story and that's meant to grab you. Generally, it's done from from the local point of view. Correct. Right, you want something that's going to grab their attention. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course, of course. That's the majority of the people that are going to be reading, and they're the ones that are going to see it first, you know. And that's the one that the the hot market because it's you're in that time zone, so so the deadlines are on those time zones and all of those kinds of things too. So that's always a problem, though. It's why you see that all the way through sports, Kobe, and uh, uh, you know, for many many years, uh, I, I was a voter for all the, the baseball awards and and the hockey awards. Okay. And and uh, I don't never did basketball awards, but 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 the NHL awards and those kinds of things. And you just didn't see the teams on the West Coast enough, you know. Because how many times you're going to cover a game and or work and watch a game, and then you you know on your normal Eastern hours, but oh by the other way, then this other one isn't going to be over till one a.m. Right? So you'd, you'd watch some of them, the more relevant ones, but you didn't see day to day. All those. It's all. It's all. It's why they say that Marcel Dion is one of the most underrated players of all time, even though he's in the Hall of Fame, because he spent too much time on the West Coast. Yeah, LA market. Right. Exactly. And 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 it, you know you don't get as much coverage from. And by the time you, it never makes the Eastern papers, you you know like you know if somebody scores five goals that night, it's not even in the newspapers. Not that newspapers are that relevant anymore uh, for coverage, but but uh, people just it just gets missed. Uh, the internet's a little better for that, don't you think? I agree. I fully agree. Like I, I'm a huge NFL fan, and I'm I'm a big Denver Broncos fan. And right. For years, the Denver Denver Broncos would get snubbed for certain right. things because they're in that Western market, right? They don't get seen. I'm yeah. a Seattle Seahawks fan. Same thing, right? It's it's hard to get noticed when you're in that market, especially by the people who make the decisions. Who make the decisions and and uh, who write the features and all of those things and 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 a lot of times you can have a really really good good team who if they were in the East would be getting an awful lot more play all the prime time slots <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah the prime time spots for even the even the columns and all of those kinds of things just because yeah. there's well more people there still too as well but but yeah it it, it uh, I always found that you know difficult with. Uh, well, there were a lot of times when, when when I was in baseball, when I first started doing all the road trips, I did. I was probably on the road 120 days a, a year at least with the Blue Jays uh, from '87 to '96, and 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 uh, there were, there would be times when we had an afternoon edition that that stayed. The Star kept theirs for a while, but we kept ours longer than anybody. And and I, I forget when we finally went only to mornings. Well, once you're when you're in the morning in a newspaper, there's a pretty hard deadline of whatever it is, you know, eleven o'clock at night or, or twelve o'clock at night. So once it got to a certain time of night, uh, in the wet, you're, you're done. That's right. right. So there'd be a lot of times I'd be sitting in a in a in a press box with no other Canadian writers at the time. The Globe, the Star, the Sun, and I all flew with the team. We all had places on the team charter, but the other three. Uh, men or women would all have gone back to their hotels and got a really good head start on the drinking. And I'm still there because, and there, there were times when some of those games would go to uh, 
three or four o'clock in the morning Eastern time, mm-hmm. you know, or one or two, you know, if it was an extra inning game and I'd be sitting there and couldn't even get a cab to come up, especially in something like Chicago, which the, the White Sox had a, you know, stadiums, a very bad part of town. A couple of other places too, where they're so far out, Kansas City, that, oh no, it's too far away. We don't want to send a cab at three in the morning out there. It was pretty nuts, but you know, I, so I always think of time zones in those, I always used to think about making deadline, making deadline. Yes. And, and then once we became morning, I was like everybody else, so not much you could do after that. Now, 24-7 deadline. Correct. Yeah, there is no deadline. There is no deadline, and there's deadline all the time. <laughs> yeah. Like it, like, yeah, you got to cover something. It's a time warp. Like, it's like it's like it's insane. Like, like I say, you, you, there are no deadlines, but there are deadlines all the time. You better get it right now. You know, that's the speed. I, I'm not a big one of speed because I think two hours after, do a better job and make sure you get it right. Yeah. You know, two hours, you know, there are a number of people that care about who has things first, but they're kind of the insider fans. They're the insider readers. Yes. I think people care about the integrity of it and, and getting it right. And, and, you know, I think there's still room for good storytelling. Pardon? Quality of the writing. Right. Yeah. And, and long reads, it's nice to see some of them coming back because they weren't. And I have to credit The Athletic, I think, for some of that because they, they saw the value in, in expounding on certain things uh, at, at, at length. But Sports Illustrated has done that online ever since they started online. And I think I did first online. I didn't even know what online was, Cody, when I first did it. So I, I had the contract. I was the Canadian uh, guy for uh, the sporting news back when it was called the Baseball Bible. And then... They called me one time and said, we're going to pay us some money. And it was a fair amount of money at the time. It's American dollars, too, in the 90s when the Canadian dollar was horrible. And they said, uh, there's this thing called the Internet, and we're switching to it. We're going out of print eventually. Uh, it took a couple of years, but we need you to write an extra thing once a week to go on the Internet. Well, I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even know how to say the word. I mean, I always called it by the wrong name. Never, I never once <laughs> saw it in, in those years. That was like 94, 95. And then... Uh, CTV Sports, uh, which at that then became Sportsnet, and then TSN bought Sportsnet. They got all crazy, right, all through the late 90s. But I was working for them as their figure skating, and they started a website only for major events and sent me to all the big events around the world, uh, myself and a, and a woman named Debbie Wilkes, who was a commentator and a really great expert on it and we wrote about it and there were there were two of us writing about it and five techies at the time and they kept crashing the first day we did it it was a million hits in 1996 at the world champs a million hits from all around the world and the globe and mail wrote about it in the front page saying there's this thing happening and here's all these people writing it and i should say debbie that i was working with is somebody that i met who was one of the figure skaters in 1966 when i was at tamla shanner so what goes around comes around, and we ended up working together. And uh, so it, it was a, a massive thing. I still didn't know what it was. I went back to our newspaper and said, look, there's this thing, and a million people are reading it. And, and they said, well, where are they reading it? And I said, well, they're all over the world. And they said, well, what do we care? We just want local. And also, why would we give away what we're selling? And that's was newspaper's answer to the Internet. Again, Kobe, I didn't even know. I'd never seen it. Yeah. I was working on it. I didn't even know it. I didn't know because I didn't have the facility to get it. You know, we didn't have we didn't have internet at the newspaper at the time, and so I didn't have any. And and you know, this was really early days, ninety five and ninety six, ninety four. So it changed the world. And if I was running newspapers at the time, I would have done exactly the same thing. Why would I give away something that I'm selling? No, hundred percent. It's you couldn't think about it that in that sort of 
no. frame of mind. Like it, it didn't even dawn upon you where the revenue would come from. Where, so. and, it, and it, for a long time, it, the only people making money off it were were, were the basically the platforms. Yes. Right? So, but people would be in those days too, and also the law was behind us. It always is. Law is always behind technology. So international law. I mean, there was nothing stopping people from just from screen grabbing, I guess you call it, or even just re-cutting re- and pasting a story and putting it on their own site and saying, okay, and maybe even crediting the spectator, but suddenly you're, you're seeing it there and not, you're not buying the Hamilton Spectator the next day or the Toronto Star or, or the Financial Post or, or, the, or the New York Times or, or whatever. So it, it took a long time to figure out how to monetize it and we were too late to get into it. And by then, most by the time we figured out we really needed to do it, most newspapers didn't have the money to absorb the few years of not making money till we figured out how we could make money from it. For sure. For sure. It's crazy being right at the beginning of something for sure. Isn't it? Or at the very end as I am. <laughs> like this, I mean, I was in both really. I, I mean, I'm not a guy that, that longs for the past. Okay. I think the internet's been terrific for some stuff. I, I, I don't like what it's turned a lot of journalists, not on, not on their liking, but to what they are. And, and they're, you know, it's not, you know, hot takes and all of those kinds of things are, are, are really, you know, I mean, you know, we used to call them opinions, I guess. But but uh, so I'm not one that, that, that says, oh, we can't we have to go back to the way it was because there was lots of stuff that was, you know, this is great to be able to find out stuff. As you say, you can follow your Broncos. That's right. Now, right? Let's, let's get nostalgic for a second. It's sure. One of the greatest stories you ever covered. What would it be? It's funny. Yeah. Well, I was there for the three Saturday nights in Georgia that were famous in Canadian history, right? Okay. Uh, first one was uh, Dwayne Ward lobs the ball. And we're all yelling in the press box, throw the damn thing, throw the damn thing to Joe Carter at first base for the out that ended the World Series Saturday night. First World Series ever won uh, by a team not in the United, United States. Uh, that was in Georgia on a Saturday night. So that would probably be there about number three and the, I was in Georgia both Saturdays of the 1996 Olympics. But because I covered the bomb on the Friday night, and I was there all night, you know, covering because I was with uh, the Spectator at the time was owned by uh, a chain called Southern, which became eventually Post Media. But Southern Spectator was sort of the star of that chain, even though we had the Montreal paper, we had Vancouver and all this, because the Southerns were Hamilton people, they started. So okay. we had a chain of maybe 15 at those major events there used to be about 15 of us that would be and we'd cover different things so i i happened to be out that night and saw the bomb go not didn't see the bomb go off but was at the park and covered it all night for all of our canadian papers so that was a friday night and donovan raced donovan bailey raced on the saturday night so i had to give my prep because there was limited press seating so they didn't want me to cover it because i'd been working all night you know, right through to noon the next day yeah. on the bomb. So I didn't get to cover it, but obviously I was there just, you know, at, at you know, in the media, in media room. So that would have been number one had, had I been, I mean, doing what I was supposed to be doing that night, but number one turned to be the following Saturday. Night. This is the, this is the, this is the one I like the most. And it's hard to explain to people. Partly it's because I came from real A, partly because it was Bernie Cern was involved and partly because of Donovan and partly because it was, all of the Hamilton used to have this track meet and, and it was a great indoor track meet and all of the Americans, all the Canadians, all the Jamaicans, all of the Trinidad Tobagans, all of the top 
relay people in the world at some point had been there at, at this meet. So you knew them all. And there was all this thing leading up that uh, the Americans are, you know, that was also the games in which, the you know, they kept trying to say, because they didn't win the 100, uh, mm-hmm. that Michael Johnson was actually the fastest guy in the world because he was going faster at the time, you know. So anyways, had to do with the, the 4 by 100 relay, which the United States had never lost I don't think at the World Championships, but definitely not in the Olympics, unless they had been disqualified by dropping the baton. They'd won every single time since the Olympics started. Four by one hundred was a signature event for, uh, in men's for the for the U.S. men's. And I'm sitting on the corner, about fifty three rows up, on the third pass, which is the last pass. And if you know anything about relays, especially the short ones, the stagger gets made up at the last pass. So when the the third guy passes to the fourth guy who's going to run the anchor leg. You can see who's ahead by what. I see, I, I see the, I get goosebumps, Kobe talking about this. I see Bruni coming roaring around the corner, handing, handing it off. And I look at the stagger and they're up by about two, two yards. And I'm thinking, I think I have the wrong lane. That must be the Americans. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I thought I, I thought, this is insane. Like, how can they be this? And then Bruni just puts his, like, as soon as he hands it off and it's a clean pass, Bruni puts his hands in the air. Like, they won, right? And 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 nobody was catching Donovan. In fact, it would have been a world record, but Donovan was so excited about it that, that he raised his arm about five yards from the end, which probably took, cost it from being a world record. Uh, but Donovan, even though he was the 100-meter champion, he spent the next week only thinking about that relay wasn't, a, you know, he had to do his thing. Like he was going on TV and making his money from that kind of thing, but he was there for the practices. He was talking up the team. He was telling everybody, this is a great team. And don't forget about how great Bruni Cern is, you know, because Bruni had to follow Ben, Ben Johnson. Right. So there was always questions about that. There's right. questions about Donovan. Everybody remember after that Olympics, everybody waited, please don't test positive. Please don't <laughs> test positive. And he never would have. Yeah. He, he would, I mean, that was the best. And then I would say uh, the Crosby goal at the Olympics. Okay. Closely followed by the, uh, what I think was the greatest women's game ever played was the, or greatest five minutes, any, or 10 minutes, was the overtime win by the Canadian women, Marie Philippe Poulin, uh, scoring on a pass from, uh, like, when everybody, you could hear everybody in the rink. Yelling shoot 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 to a woman named uh, Laura Fatino, who was the right defenseman. They had a power play, and only she saw that Poulin was open. Yeah, and passed it over to Poulin. The whole bench is on it. I can still hear them yelling, "Pat or shoot shoot!" And she passes it over, and it goes in. Well, if you remember that, with five minutes to go or six minutes to go, they were down two nothing. Canada was down two nothing. Canada scored. Then uh, it was two to one. They they had the, the goalie out of the net. It was empty net, and the Americans shot a puck down. The ice and it curled at the last minute. It did an out, uh, an intern and missed the post by a quarter inch. Didn't go on the net. Didn't make it three to one and created icing. Everybody in the rink, including the Americans, knew what was going to happen next. And of course, it happened. Canada scores to send it in overtime. Then uh, I think they both got penalties. And then Haley Wickenheiser is on a breakaway. And at the time, everybody thought it was her last Olympics. It didn't turn out to be. Thank goodness she played another one and she gets a breakaway and she's pulled down from behind. And it looks like it's going to be a penalty shot. Probably should have been. It looks like it's going to be a penalty shot in overtime of the Olympics. 
on what would have been Haley Wickenheiser's last play at the time, we thought. They didn't call penalty shot. I think that would have been a little bit too much. So, But they did call you know, a penalty, So, and that ended up with a goal. So that it's real close to the Crosby goal for me. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I was man. watching it from the same angle, Kobe, in the same spot, about the same distance up, but maybe 25 rows on the same angle. And on Crosby's goal, you could hear him yelling, uh, Ziggy, 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 right? And then yeah. you could hear, and it was a funny shot, you know, that was coming through. And then you could hear them yelling, shoot, 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 to Laura. And so it sort of had parallels there. And the real parallel was I, had, I was sitting with different guys at each one. I think it was Mike Tracos from The Sun and The One, and I can't remember who I was with on the second one. But I said exactly the same thing, but before the puck went in the net, as you could see at development, are you expletive deleted? <laughs> kidding me? Kidding me, yeah. <laughs> because you could see what was going to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you knew it right away. Like, you're thinking, what? And, you know, I guess the Joe Carter home run would be up there as, as the the other one. That for years, my scorebook, you know, I you keep your scorebooks. I did a lot of games, and even the games I didn't, I'd cut out the box scores and everything like that. Because well, there's nothing online. You had to keep track of all this stuff yourself. You had to go back, and you had elaborate ways of doing scorebooks. So you might – you'd put uh, runners in scoring position. If it was in a bat, you'd put a uh, – say, a green circle around it so it will jump out at you when you're doing your stats at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. Well, for years and years and years, my scorebook, I, and I found it years later from uh, from that game, the Joe Carter game, had a blank but just a green box around it, like score, like runners are in scoring position. But he hits the home run. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so you can't, you know, you're running down to your, you you got, you're running down to the talk to him and, and those kinds of things. So it never, it never got filled in. And there was another one like that uh, where I had a great seat for it. Uh, I was at the uh, 89, no, well, not 89, it must be 88 World Series. And it was the first game of the World Series. And I had a seat down a little bit because, you know, you move farther away from the hottest spots if your team isn't in it. But if you're a regular beat writer, you get not a bad spot. But the farther away your team is from being in it, uh, the farther down the line. Well, I was moved down the line a little bit, but I had a great view into the Dodgers' dugout. Okay. So it's coming down to the – this is the first first game. And, you know, Kirk Gibson isn't going to play. He's limping. He can hardly walk. And I look at him, and he's picking up a bat, and he's walking into the clubhouse. And I said to the guys, "If this next guy gets on, I think I think Gibson's gonna, I think Gibson's gonna pinch dead." They're saying you're crazy. I said, "No, I, I, you're right. I am crazy, but he's got a bat." Now he comes limping out. I mean, I don't know if you <laughs> saw that at bat, but he was limping out, limping out, limping out. And the first two pitches were down and away, which is where they wanted to pitch him, and he had no chance of hitting them, and he looked awful. And then he launches the one, and then he limps around the paths, and the place is going crazy. Now, it shouldn't be as an iconic a home run as it is, right? It It's always ranked up there as the number one or two home runs in the United States, which is BS. Right? Okay. Is that because it ended the drought for the Dodgers? <laughs> the significance yeah, of that? Yeah, and it was because it was L.A., Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it was because it was against Oakland, too, and Eckersley, and they were the big team. But it was because of that, it, 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 you know, that it was, you know, and it was because it was L.A. It was, you know, one of the, the major things. It's like uh, the Bobby Thompson home run, the shot around the world in 1951. 
Mm. Well, that was in the that was in the that was in a playoff in, just for the American League. They got clobbered in the World Series because they were in, because they were in New York. Well, I mean, they got I guess they got beat by uh, they got beat by that year. Well, the Yankees, I, I would imagine, and and uh, mm. but the, that was for the National League Series that Bobby Thompson shot hit heard around the world. It's because it was from New York. Both the Mazeroski Mazeroski should be number one, and Joe Carter should be number two home runs. Because, yeah, it, it, the, they should be the ones, you know, in my mind. But because you know, neither of them were were you know from big market teams or that kind of thing. But they both decided World Series. That's right, absolutely. At, at the at the time, it was their walk offs. BetUS Sportsbook is your ultimate destination for online betting. With sports betting, live betting, racebook, online slots, and online casino, it's available across the U.S. and Canada. Use the code PSP to receive a massive sign-up bonus. Now, I, obviously, I've brought uh, Nate Wallace Bruce in to join us. He's got a, a few questions for you. I've enjoyed talking to you so much, Steve. Okay, I, so I, I figure he's going to join and get some questions in for him with yeah, you, at least uh, some quick ones. All right. Yeah, sorry. I, I do talk a lot, don't I? Oh, hey, no. no worries. No worries. It, <laughs> it's awesome, man. I love hearing the stories. And by the way, we've had Robert Esme on the show Oh, talking to him blast it, off oh blast man off. From, from what he told me the way he says it is that going into that four by 100 relay they knew they were going to win they knew yeah it. oh they did they there talked was about no it a doubt, lot, but man. they wouldn't they wouldn't brag as much as the americans did, did that's did. right but they would tell those of us in that they trusted we're going to win this thing and i knew all those guys because they ran i mean he, he wouldn't remember me but but he he ran at our meet a lot when he was like 17 they were all they were all here, so they there were there were a few people that were big in track. And James Christie, I think, might have been another one from the Globe, and a, a few others that 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 they said maybe Alan Abel, you know, quietly, we we will win this thing. And 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 even the American when the Americans had asked them, they'd say we're not backing down. We're as good as them. But yeah. it was something. It was something. <laughs> it was awesome. And uh, it was in other words, it was it was a crappy Olympics, other than a couple couple of things, right? Right. Other than that, I mean, it never should have been there. Coca Cola bought it. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, we, we, 100%. Yeah, we covered that in, uh, with um, one of our guests who who looks into, you know, the bidding process in the Olympics, and it's interesting to see how the companies have their tentacles around certain bids. But Makes you not trust future Olympics in, in a lot of ways. Not at all. Absolutely. They're, tr- they're trying to clean it up a little bit, but they're only cleaning up parts of it. Only parts of it. I don't trust the IOC. Indeed. All right, who, who am I with? Uh, Neil Spruce. We met. We met at the Canada soccer game. Oh well, yeah, that's right. March. We met at the, at the soccer game. Yeah. So staying in that vein of Canada soccer, one yeah. of Hamilton's exports is Milan Borjan, the goalkeeper. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the news and he's in the line of fire right now after the Concacaf Conca- Nations League final in um, in Las Vegas. Have we seen the last of him in a Canada jersey? In your opinion, I you know I'm not up as up to that as and what was the latest today. So they lost 2-0 in the final. Right, I saw the game, yeah. I, I feel like the, the goal from the set piece, he, he probably should have done better with that. He, he, he kind of needs to stop that. He? Yeah, he, I thought he overplayed that. Yeah, he didn't position him, himself well there. And then the second goal, the ball was pinballing around. Maybe that's on, his de- on the defenders in front of him. But again, yeah, I've seen goalkeepers stop those. Yeah. You know, he brings a lot to that team and, and you know, I don't know how much because, but I'm just going what other players tell me, and of course they're going to tell me certain things because they know he's from Hamilton. Mm. But he's also made a couple of big saves last night. True, 
couple of really big ones. And and he has had, like most goalkeepers, I, I, I think we know this more about our own. I mean, it's like we have a goaltender here in, in Hamilton who once a year makes a makes a whiff, right? And then we remember, but we don't see it happen to other play teams as much because they're not the team we're we're really looking for and mm. criticizing, and and you know they're not our team, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And and uh, so Milan's, you know, he had that one uh, in the World Cup too. He had that that uh, that major mistake. I don't know if it was him, but it was a miscommunication issue that yes. you know yeah. was really a, a pivotal goal. At the time, but but yeah, uh, I don't think I think Herdman likes him a lot. Now, this this the backup guy is pretty damn good. Yeah, Dane Sinclair from Minnesota United. He's a uh, yeah, he's definitely shown himself an MLS player. Yeah. He's he's got the the hands. Yeah, and even to the number compete. three guy's pretty good. Hmm. So, and over time, you know, I think we'll we'll see the change. But I don't know. We'll see. You know. Uh, I don't think he's done with the national team by any means. I think Herdman likes to have his presence there. Fair right? enough. And, and I think the, you're more of a soccer guy than I am. As a, as I was saying earlier, I really got into a deep only ten or twelve years ago, and it was through Herdman at mm-hmm. the Olympics um, in twenty in the London Olympics in twenty twelve because there's something about he just took time to explain the game to me more. I mean, I'd always gone to the games. I, I watched. Beckenbauer when, and all those guys in the NASL back in the 70s when I lived in Toronto I'd go down to the games I never saw Pelé play but but uh, but uh, I did see all those other great guys Kriff and all those guys but but uh, it wasn't something that grabbed me till I sort of had it explained a little bit more and then I could see also to see your own team play and the mm-hmm. kind of football that that Forge plays mm-hmm. very it's an alley it's very similar to the Canadian game they play that long alley on the outside and, and, uh, very similar to the way the game is, the modern game is now. That, For sure. You know, one side or the other, they play that, that 200, that, uh, 100 meter game up the side from the right back or the left back. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, Forrest does a lot of that and cross through the middle and they've got some just excellent players and, you know, so that really helps that now you can sort of translate that. that like the f- soccer pitch looks different to me now. I used to think it looked too big. But having seen more games in, a, in 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 soccer environments and those kinds of things, and seen the way it's the, the players dissect the field and all that kind of thing, it doesn't seem too big to me anymore. That, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm watching it, it, doesn't seem like this vast acreage of of things. I still think you know you, that there should be two full referees on the field. I don't know why they're so stubborn about that. Like hockey, that might I be think, a matter of time. That might be I, a matter I, of time. I think you're yeah. right. I, I, you know, and and all the the increase in betting. I mean, soccer. I shouldn't say there's been an increase in betting in soccer. There has been in Canadian soccer, but but uh, uh, and will be as time goes on more, um, just because it's more legal now. But soccer's always been a huge betting sport, mm. but uh, with so much riding on it now, and it's just in, you know it's exponentially increased with the amount of betting in the world. That I mean, it's just gone up exponentially. Those things like missed calls are now for the wrong reasons, which is betting money are, are bigger than they used to be. Mm-hmm. So I think, sure. I think you're right. I think it goes to two at some point. has to. It really, they, I mean, they already bent a little bit of pressure by giving more uh, power to the sideline officials than they used to have, right? Yeah, and, and you have a little, little bit more of help from the uh, television yeah, yeah, uh, cameras yeah, as well. You have and, a, and, an official yeah. in the booth, so that helps. Speaking of um, big big fields, though, just going back to the three-down football, Bolivar Mitchell... He left the game looking a bit uh, worse for wear against the Argonauts in the rivalry game. 
overnight. Yeah. He is the big marquee signing for Hamilton, oh, which is interesting signed. when you consider yes. their, I guess, their quarterback development that they've had over the last couple of seasons. Yeah. Uh, are they going to be okay with Levi Mitchell being a little bit crocked well, now? Well, I'm or? getting an awful lot of uh, negative things right now because, once again, uh, I don't know if you know this, but by losing last night, this is the 16th time in 18 – no, 12th time in 18 seasons they've started the season at 0-2. There's only 18 games. That's 11% of your season. You got to – you know, you so it takes you two weeks just to get back to 500. That's if you win them both. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people negative and, and, and uh, because they went through some quarterbacks last year. And as you're right, they developed – quarterbacks here and 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 i think some people would have been okay with keeping the one that they had but the team felt that they weren't they wanted to go for a winning pedigree but i i've been getting a lot of emails from people in calgary that say oh when he was here he was just that or the other thing but the guy did win two great cups and he mm. did I, I think people tend to look at the ones he didn't win and and not give him is, is he what he used to be maybe he's not uh you know but they'll be in trouble if, if you got to have two quarterbacks that are good to, mm-hmm. to win in this league. That's been the case in the last two or three years because of the, the amount of hurting that's going on, which is you know why they kept the backup quarterback they had last year, and, and he came off the bench and did okay, but didn't mean anything because the game was already over. So, mm-hmm. you know, the other team is slacking off. They're not playing with the same intensity, that kind of thing. But uh, they won't be okay if he's not okay, if that's the question. Right. Uh, and I've been unable to find out today, and I've been on it all day, how he is. Like, they, there's nobody around. They, he probably is being looked at right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. So I won't know probably till the morning when I get to practice to see what, and even then they, they may not decide I mean, they're playing on Friday. Right. So, I mean, he didn't look that good coming off the field. He got hit hard and that should have been roughing the passer. Yeah. I don't know what, I had no idea why it wasn't. Yeah. The referees seem to let a little bit go in terms yeah. of the pass rush they they seem to let the boys play when it came to getting yeah. it after the quarterback that's not what they're supposed to be doing right now about quarterbacks because we've had too many quarterbacks hurt and that's the money guys right so mm-hmm. uh, we had the, the television on I was in the at the game obviously in the press box so I'm watching it live so I'm not listening to what they said on television but and it was getting near the end of the game too because so you're writing and concluding already you know uh, you know, it's obviously pretty clear by then Hamilton's going to lose, so I'm already writing. But, but, but uh, the uh, again, man, especially when I watch the replay, I go, that has to be. And he looked angry at that too. But he he was definitely favoring that left leg somewhere mm. between the knee and the groin. Yeah, and uh, it wasn't lower, it wasn't down around the ankle. And Hamilton already has a bunch of other injuries. They've got four guys that could start on the defensive line that 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 are. Uh, on long-term injury and you know they they lost both of their right tackles in the first game and had another new guy in there and then they lost their right guard in the game last night very early and had to put a rookie in there and that meant that they had to put extra blocking in mm-hmm. instead of using those people that they use as blockers instead of using them as numerous receivers so that had something to do with with things too and they just weren't able to get him any time and Toronto's good Toronto's a really good team yeah and and them and Win- they in Winnipeg which you Bo kept saying from the start, well, this is a real good test. It'll tell us where you're at, where we're at, because we're playing the top two the two teams that made the Grey Cup last year. Well, the last three Grey Cup winners, actually. Uh, so, And where they're at is not good enough. And they're, mm-hmm. they're, they've got a lot of injuries, but they aren't good enough right now. And it, they're, I mean, they're 24 starters. 12 of them are different than the ones who finished the season last year. So that takes some time to work that in. But I don't think you want to – I mean, they just started the game's 
poorly. Both games yep. they were. I mean, one game they were down twenty nine four. The next game they're down twenty nine six. So they were two points better in the second game. Well, at that rate, we'll, uh, they'll tie a game by September. <laughs> the season will be done by then, and it's in a year where Hamilton's hosting the cup. That's just not acceptable. Well, a little background music here. Um, the team, you know, had that great year in twenty nineteen and was fifteen and three, the best season in history, and then had a good playoff. Except they get to the Grey Cup and they completely, they completely were blown out by Winnipeg, who had been building all year. And, and it was just one of those things. And 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 they just there were a number of things that happened in that game: interceptions, fumbles, inability to score at a key time, uh, get a touchdown, then not back it up by a good defensive stand, a bad punt, all of those things. Well, the next year, those things happen for the whole year, even in games that they won. Some of the games that they won last year, you know, so in the second half, a lot of stuff had bad, happened to them. The other team wouldn't quite catch up. And then in the when they were eliminated in the, in the first round of the playoffs, a lot of the same things added up, one of which was the turnovers by the quarterback. Well, now you start this season, and the quarterback has four four turnovers in the, in the first – Five, including a fumble in, in the first two games, four interceptions and a, and a fumble. Well, it doesn't take long for people to equate that with what went on all of last year, right? And so I'm making all kinds of things. I'm, I'm withholding judgment for now till I see how they gel a little bit when communication starts, but their communications already been screwed up by a bunch of injuries. That, and their place kicker left the team because he, he uh, wants to be with his wife um, and newborn baby, and he was money in the bank. The team changed around quite a bit when he started to be, uh, you know, guaranteed three pointer last year. So, uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of anger around this town and more apprehension when people saw some, a couple of players were they, they had said said to me, you know, oh boy, this is not what we wanted to see him limping off the field like that. Absolutely not. And I mean, they're human beings, right? They 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 know, you know, they know what injuries are and how long and and hopefully again. It didn't look like it was either of the joints, the groin or the knee. It looked like it was between those two where they had the ice. But that was just first glance, and that was the first icing. So I don't know what – we don't know what the x-rays show, and x-rays tend to show other things. You know, like sometimes where it hurts isn't where the injury really is. It hurts in, the, let's say, the, the, the quad or the hammy, but the injury is really around the, the, knee, the patella or in the hip. You know, so – We'll see. But, uh, yeah, it's not good if he's hurt for any length of time, especially no the Grey Cup here in town this year. hundred percent. People are always saying, you got to make the Grey Cup, got to make the Grey Cup, you know, because it's here. Well, they've waited, what, an extra three years, because I believe this is the one that was postponed from 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it was from 21. 21. Uh, but they had the one in 21, and they almost mm-hmm. won that. They lost in overtime. Not everybody could come because of the pandemic type thing. And the city didn't make any money off it because nobody flew in because they didn't even know if they're going to have the game until mm. near the end, right? Because of the, because Ontario and particularly Hamilton had tremendous restrictions on it. So they couldn't do all of the things they were going to do, couldn't have any of the festivals downtown, any of that stuff that they were going to do. And so they gave them 23 as a compensation. They did it even before 21, before that they did it before. Before that, they announced that Hamilton would get it back again in 23 to, to get their chance to do it the way they, they wanted to do. Yeah, so this is, you know, people want to be part of this. They want to, you know, they're dying for something to celebrate. The, this town, this team has rebuilt itself over the last few years, the franchise. I mean, it was bankrupt 
them and the Ar- they and the Argos were bankrupt. And while the Argos have won a number of great cups since then, they haven't had the success at the gate or, I mean, th- this town, this thing has become a new, even for people that have moved into the city, and there's a lot of them, a lot of people have come to the city because of the uh, real estate prices were a little lower, and so they sold the place in Toronto, came here. A lot of people came here for more opportunity, and, you know, the GO train comes out here all the time now, it didn't used to. And so a lot of people, a lot of younger people go to the game because it's something that gets them into finding out what Hamilton's like right away. I always called it, it's our, it's our town square. But, you know, the, uh, so there's expectations, you know, that they want this, this great cup to be something that, that will be so memorable for everybody because it, 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 we may not have another one for five or six years here and, and maybe seven or eight years. And, and, uh, so that's a long time in the lifetime of a lot of people. And for some people, it's more time than they have left on earth. So everybody wants it. So they, you know, just get to that great cup and let us have that feeling again. Cause it was pretty good, but they weren't able to, to do the kinds of things they would normally do in, a, in a, having a team in, in a hometown Grey Cup, just because of the restrictions from the pandemic. Absolutely. Now you you touched on a a fan base dying for sports in yeah. Hamilton. This is I, this is a little bit pie in the sky, but stay with me. Is there any feasible pathway for the city of Hamilton to get NHL hockey? Not under the current situation. It would have to be an emergency of a team that went absolutely just couldn't make it and, and some of those ones. But the West needs more teams, right? So with Gary there, I don't think it'll ever come here, Gary Batman. This might always be a place that it could have leverage. There's still an argument if the team, if, it, if they were ever to go to 36 teams, another Canadian team should go in, in Toronto area. And I argued this, I've been arguing this since 1991. And in fact, the people making the bid told me to shut up about it. I was saying, really, let's call things the way they are here. This is back in 91. People keep saying Hamilton's a little town. Let's forget about this. This is not about Hamilton getting a team. It's about the Toronto market getting a second team. And we're the ones, just like Long Island is in New York. And that is the way you have to sell this thing. Like, but then, of course, then the Leafs. And what do you do about Buffalo and that? But but if the economics change a little bit, and you never know, it could. It might be good to have divisions that are around the Great Lakes where you don't have to travel so much and cut costs down and, and create rivalries because you play them a little more often and those kinds of things. Uh, so the other thing is the person that's running the rink they're building a new rink, not building a rink, redoing the one with, with, with a plan. I think that they could make it big enough if they needed to for NHL, but they're trying to make it so they can see 10,000 for good junior and make a lot of money out of that and have lots of great concerts. And, and it's tied to, uh, it's tied to Toronto partly, uh, through, um, the group that does the entertainment. But Tim Lightwicky is the one, the company, the outside company behind it. And it's called o- o- Ovi and, and, uh, Tim, of course, has connections to the NHL. He's been there a long. He was with MLSC. He's he, he spent started with uh, Ann Schultz out uh, in LA. Uh, those, those kinds of things. So he, he's he's big in the NHL. So it always helps to have, to be on the inside in the NHL. As we just found out, with uh, we call him a, a native son. He's not really he lives in Oakville, but he he's done more for Burlington than most people, or for Hamilton than, than most people who live here. And that's the owner of the Bulldogs, Michael Andelauer, who who uh, owned the 
the, the Bulldogs when they were the AHL team that was the, the uh, top farm team of Montreal Canadiens. And at that time, through an accidental bunch of things and, and just because he, he's very, very determined and a really good owner, he ended up buying a, a, a stake in the Canadiens. Well, he got well-known around the league as a very trustworthy guy that can make decisions and can get things done. And for what he's done for hockey in this town as an owner, just given and, and as a philanthropist in this town. So there's an example. And, and of course, he had that gave him the inside track. Now, he had to come up with the right financing. But that gave him an inside track to get the Ottawa Senators, and he got them over over people who were more favored to get him at the start. Mm-hmm. But he emerged as as the guy. So would would having a Tim Laiwiki in this town help that a little bit? It would, but only if the economics of this game change. One of which would be have to be an expansion by four, so that one of them would be in Canada, and because the re- the rest have to go out in the west to places like Houston and and. And, and places like that. I mean, I can't believe Houston's not in it, right? And 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 wherever else would be. So it would have to be a team that had to move in a hurry. Uh, and one of those teams looks like they're going to be an okay ground now. And that's Florida. That was one that you always looked at. And thought, hmm, maybe they got to leave at some point. Mm. And uh, but it'd be much better here by far than Quebec City. The economics are not there in Quebec City for NHL under the current manner in which it's done because it's just not enough the local money not enough head offices that kind of thing all the head offices here you can't the Leafs can't service them they can't there aren't enough boxes and private seats and high-end money things to service all all of the people who would love particularly in corporations that would like mm. to buy in and Hamilton has an international airport players will take a note of that at one point the players at one point will say whoa you know if we're sharing hockey revenue how come we aren't going to places where we know we can get this so there we go. Very sound points there. Yeah, I'm not sure that that could be a bit naive. Now, so, well, if if the commissioner changes, we can we can always revisit. Yeah. And the economics have to change too. Oh, I <laughs> I have a feeling the economics will change in a few months. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There we'll could be see. Some pain. And, and you know, you're seeing all this now. Where 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 uh, MLS is it's poised to move ahead of the NHL into number oh, yeah. four. No- yeah, and we know that's going to happen. It's just when. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gary Bettman has not done a good job there. but Well, not on that part, but he's made the owners an awful lot of money. You know, like they're, they're making lots of money, way more than they used to. And it's just that, you know, compared to the other teams, the other three are pulling away a little more. But that doesn't mean the NHL. I mean, the pie is very big. I mean, the, the owners, I mean, if Gary wanted to be commissioner until he's 150, He's commissioner until he's 150. I'll meet you along. I'll meet you probably along, along the way there. Yes, he's making the teams profitable, and he answers to the owners. So yes, he's doing his job for them. But in terms of TV ratings in the US, yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, the the Pinstripe Bowl last year outstripped the deciding game of the Stanley Cup Finals this year in the US yeah. in terms of TV ratings. Gary Benton has failed there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I don't think I can disagree with you. I thought. They were on the right track there because TV was going regional. Mm. That seemed to be where it was happening, but uh, and and their contracts were all regional. But yeah, um, uh, certainly on a national TV level, at, at broadcast level, it's just not. And it, I think part of that is just because unless you've got a hot team and it's in it, you know, half of the United States, you know, by the time you get to the games that matter, which is where all leagues make their money. I mean, it's why the NBA mm. you never see till Christmas, really. Mm. You know, so. That when the games matter, people, it's 85 degrees in 
two thirds of the United States by that time of year. There we go. You know, it's not, you know, they don't want to watch hockey in May and June. That's right. They, that's exactly right. I, so. I, I, and so I don't know how much of that's on Batman, but you're right that he, they haven't found a way. He hasn't found a way to be able to counter that. And Gary'd have thousands of different arguments, but they'd uh, all be ones that you and I would say not believe. And I guess the demise of Bally Sports hasn't helped. I, I, I will throw that in there. The, the slow death of that regional sports network that was spawned yeah. out of the Fox Sports networks down there. Yeah, hasn't that, helped. that hurt a lot of things, I think, because you know, you're, nobody was sure what was where. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think you know some of these other sports got to watch it because you got to. Sometimes you don't know what games are on what now because you know with Apple TV and all of that stuff coming in, and it gets a little harder to find it. Like, and there, here's an adage in the in the uh, in my feeling, and I saw this with the baseball strike of ninety four, ninety four, and I remember saying writing during it like the owners were insane here i said i don't know which markets it's going to hurt i know it's going to hurt toronto because toronto is guaranteed for four million no matter what every year till the end of time because if, if you're somewhere you're living somewhere that you can get to toronto you go to toronto for friday night and go to cats at the theater and saturday you go to the jays next year and you do it every year it's your strip that you come down from sault saint marie to do from brandon manitoba you do it and it 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 was locked into people's thing but one absolute adage about the entertainment business and that is what sport is it's entertainment business you do not let the customers ever question whether they could actually survive without you and you Mm. definitely don't give them evidence that they can and that's what happened during the baseball strike and you saw how many cities it killed baseball in montreal Mm -hmm. it cut toronto's toronto's gate by 1.5 or 6 million a year for years kansas city had almost killed trying to think of two or three other places, maybe Pittsburgh, uh, two or three others where it was really, really made things quite dicey there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but they got to watch making it a little too hard to watch the games. Although sure. maybe if you maybe, maybe it doesn't matter what it's on because you're seeing the highlights anyways on your phone. There is that. Only in the younger demographics though. Yeah. So um, it's, that's a, that's a snapshot of the population. It's not the full, the full set. Now, no, that's right. We can find your work at the Hamilton Spectator. Where can we yeah. find your social media if you want to delve a bit deeper into the Steve Milton experience? We're just trying, I'm trying to figure that much out. So, to Twitter, it's uh, at Milton at the spec. Mm-hmm. And it's the spec.com is, is our website. It's .com, not .ca. And, and you know, we're, we're there every day on that. And, you know, there's obviously the books and those things out there that's pretty well it i mean i don't do as much social media anymore because i'm not doing the tv and radio that i did for 20 30 years i'm I'm pulling back a little bit on that so i'm still messing around with the odd book here and there but but uh we'll have to get you back on to talk about those books because yeah we love a good read out here yeah i I don't know you know know how good reads are a couple of them pretty good the one on angela moscow was really good and and i think the one that on the figure skaters Tessa and Scott, I did both mm-hmm. of their books too. And there's one on a guy named Howard Baldwin, who was the only guy who was there at the start of the WHA as an owner, and at the end when they merged with the NHL. He was the only one wow. that, that was there all the way through all that. And he ended up owning a two or three teams. He actually started the uh, San Jose Sharks, and then they kind of took it away from him and gave it to somebody else and gave him another team. And he was a movie producer too. He's won a Golden Globe for the movie Ray. 
And uh, so oh. an interesting guy there. So Howard Baldwin is his name. He owned the Penguins for a while. Wow. Oh, hang on. He owned the Penguins for a while. Did he Did he purchase the Penguins from... Um, Bartolomeo. Yes, the, the San Francisco uh, family when they ran into some issues. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he's a great guy, a long-time friend. So, yeah, so I'd be happy to talk about that anytime. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, awesome having you on, Steve. That was amazing, buddy. Great chat. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcasters experience, where no sport is left behind.